You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honoured to welcome to our show friend, interfaith colleague, Rachel Raya. Rachel is a middle school teacher aspiring to practice Buddhism authentically. After about 35 years of study, practice, retreat, service, and facilitating learning, teaching, philosophy, and meditation, Rachel, welcome to our show. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. So what path of spiritual practice brought you to this moment? How did Buddhism become your focus? In thinking about this question, I realized there was no way to actually answer it all. Um, My life is longer than an hour, and uh, anything I say is going to give you an illusion of an answer. It's going to be a a part of a story. But um, with that said, and the intention of I don't know, providing some insight into something. Mm-hmm. Um, the spiritual practice that I've gone through in my life is kind of um, everything. <laughs> um, I started uh, with philosophy and meditation in my family life. Um, so by the time I was eight, I was meditating and mm. uh, discussing philosophy way before that. I was raised in a Roman Catholic family and um, became uh, aware of uh, wanting to do service and and fulfilling some sort of, uh, you know, happiness and so on. So meditation kind of built up until I was 16, and then I was starting retreats, actually. So did you teach yourself meditation? Where was this coming from? My father was a a professor of religion and also of... uh, philosophy in a Catholic college and in Western Pennsylvania. But he also studied TM and Sylvan mind control, and he taught us as children. Right, um, I was going to say, because a, a professor, professors don't necessarily teach meditation. That's much more, you know, just educational is rather different to that spiritual, perhaps. Is, is that right? It was the late 60s, early 70s, okay, fair. and uh, we were going to communes, and right, right, <laughs> we right. were exploring everything. Uh, by the time I was 10, we were going on family uh, vacations to listen to Sufi teachers in Canada. Right. Um, yeah, all sorts of experiences and differences, not uh, the regular Catholic upbringing. Um, we would go to... Uh, Baptist churches and mm. uh, uh, evangelical events, as well as you know, mass on Sunday. Um, we eventually, by about ten years old, that we our family was involved with the Inayat order. It's called the Inayat order What's now that? of uh, Sufism in the West. So it used to be called Sufi Order of the West. Um, so this is Hazrat Inayat Khan and and his son Pirvalid Inayat Khan. 
and uh, their family and and the tradition of Sufism coming out of Islam, but but really broadening into the universal aspects of taking everything from every religion into a um, into an, a couple of hours service every Sunday, so a universal uh, worship. Then in my teenage years, after <laughs> getting to college and starting to have my own mind about mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. I started to um, be exposed to Zen and um, by the time and Tibetan um, and Eastern religions. By the time I was in college um, for junior year, I decided to go to India and study Buddhism in Bodhgaya. What What was it that that made you go? I I have to go there to do that. Um, I didn't have a very strong other language except Spanish, and I didn't think it was a good use of a, a, a travel abroad to go to England and study literature. <laughs> I wanted something more. I, well, I skipped a whole section of my life, which is 12 through 15. I lived on a boat. Oh, wow. So so, wow, so quite a journey to yeah. This is only start. Some of it, I'm sure. I haven't even got past you know, college <laughs> yet, you know. And I'm already into deep, deep investigation with meditation. And you know, in India, we were meditating two hours a day, studying Tibetan language and uh, anthropology. I, I was an anthropology and religion major. Um, so, but when I came back, my mom kind of didn't feel comfortable with there not being a god in uh-huh. Buddhism, and I didn't want to upset my mother. So I tried to be Christian again and um, really investigated Quaker um, traditions. I lived and worked in a Quaker uh, program center. So I guess this kind of leads me to the question of um, about Buddhism. We've had a few people on the show in the last few years, talk about Buddhism. I guess I've never really asked outright, is it a religion or a thought pattern? Because when it, when you're talking about God and a family member not being comfortable with there not being a God, what is, what is it to you? Okay, so you've asked me a couple of questions there. I guess, yes. Um, in terms of what is it, it is all of these, those things. You know, in, in college, we studied it as a philosophy. Hmm. Um, but people who are born into Buddhism, it is their way of life. It is just as much a religion to them as any other religion. So it depends on your definition of what a religion is and how comfortable you are with separating those two things. Um, in terms of then and now, mm. um, you know, what what it meant then as sort of although my parents had introduced me to these other religions, actually assuming that as an identity or a main focus for my life was not exactly what my mother had in mind at at that point. Um, And I love my mother. I I mean, family is really important. That's why I'm here in Santa Fe now. So... um, what it meant was I was trying to figure that out at that right. point. I was still in that I'm everything. I'm not anything, you know. But so so why can't I be? If I'm everything, why can't I be Quaker or mm. Christian-oriented? But um, now what that means to me is if if it's important to you that I believe in God, I could 
pretty closely believe in God. It's it's not like for me it it matters. Go on, tell me because what, what does that mean? What does that mean? You stand for if if you know I have m- my own personal beliefs, and you ask me, I go, well, I, yeah, I kind of believe that. I don't believe that. But what you're saying is, when you said if you need me to believe in God, like I I don't have that need. So what's at the core for you? I what didn't is mean that? you personally. No, no, no. But but what does that mean? It for you as a as a practicing Buddhist, what does that mean for you to be authentically yourself in I relationship? Guess I almost it? said it as a shocker, right? Okay, it's it's not that I don't have um, the attempt at a complete because I even introduced myself as authentically trying to practice Buddhism. Um, it's that in the philosophy of Buddhism, those absolutes and relatives that you use in your your introduction. They're all relative. There's a, there, it's relative. It's mm-hmm. very much a relative truth. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an ultimate truth, and that ultimate truth is usually labeled emptiness. That, 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 that whole uh, philosophy underlying things. Of course, as human beings, uh, it takes a very special mind to get past where we are now, ordinary beings. We're all involved in the relative truth, either even when we're trying to get through to that ultimate truth. So what I stand for is more the process of investigating my own mind and not holding on to things that are, um, are illusions as realities. Such as what? What kind of things are illusions? Uh, everything we experience, basically. I mean, when you talk about Buddhism, they go into the science of the mind. So even when you're talking about the senses, even when you're talking about how you experience the world, all of that is misperception, misconception, especially. Perception is valid, but the the immediate... Um, value that we put on it or the immediate um, experience we have of that direct perception leads us into uh, mistaken reality. So I'm I'm fascinated by this. You know, I think for me, those pure moments, I think about spending time with my kids, for example, or with my wife, and um, those pure moments of connection and being in when, I, when you say mistaken, I, I naturally get defensive, mm-hmm. obviously, as a human being. There's nothing mistaken about that. That's real. It's raw. It's, it's, it's the reality, even though I know mm-hmm. it's my perception of reality. And the way I view my kids is very different to the way they view me, for example. You know, it's not just a height difference, a power difference, an age difference, a, all that kind of thing. What is it that you're saying is mistaken? Because I know you're not attacking no, and that's, I mean, that's part of the process of the mind reacting to that word is actually part of that um, investigation. What it, what it means is w- whether it's a relative or an ultimate truth. We're, we're back to that. If it's, if it's a relative truth, it's covered, it's, its true nature is covered over and mistaken. If it's an ultimate truth, there is absolutely no mistake to it. And it also is not subject to the change uh, and impermanence mm-hmm. that even though that's perfect in its rawness and, and beauty and love, 
it is st- it's not a judgment you're no, right. Right, right because love is definitely better than some of the alternatives we have rolling around here it is it but it is still mistaken in that it's not ultimate truth it's not the way that is the way we're experiencing that has an element of illusion mm. because what we do with that experience quite naturally is create a permanent fixture of self around that self and others, you and your children, and, but, but it's based on the identity of the self. I think we should take a pause. And when we come back, let, let's ask about, I guess, the essence of being human in the face of what you consider to be absolute truth, I think. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Rachel Raya, middle school teacher aspiring to practice Buddhism authentically after about 35 years of engagement with Buddhism. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rachel Raya, middle school teacher aspiring to practice Buddhism authentically after decades of studying and engaging in Buddhism. Before the break, Rachel, you were talking about the, the ultimate truth. You mentioned that a number of times. What is it to be human? What is the essence of being human? You know, before the break, I shared some of my personal experience and we were discussing the relative and how, how we interpret it and how we attach ourselves to it. What does it mean to be human in a world of relative and also, in your perspective, an absolute, fundamental absolute truth as well? Well... Well, let me ask another way. What's the essence of being human in and of itself? Well, the, 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 the state of being human is one that's fortunate enough to be able to investigate ultimate reality. Mm. If you think about other forms of living beings, I was dog-sitting last night, um, the the spectrum of a of a dog's experience is overlapping a human's experience we're in the same space but yet we can see that they don't interact with philosophical ideas quite the same way that you and I do right um that is not to say that they aren't magnificent creatures right, right? Or right. with a lot of love in their hearts which is sometimes more than humans can say about themselves but there is this um, freedom from um, obstructions to to really coming to know that truth. And that is the essence of being human within relation to ultimate truth. The relative truth is something that in Buddhism, it's, it's all wrapped up in the karmic uh, manifestations that we have created. And this is how we don't have a God. Because mm-hmm. those two things... Although in in what's called Hinduism they exist <laughs> together, right, right. in Buddhism it's it's really clearly, you know, the karmic um, habits that we've 
we form through our actions create what we experience. And therefore, there's not a creator God. Um, there are deities or, or God realm beings, but there aren't necessary, depending on which, which variety of Buddhism. So I guess, I guess part of my question that follows on from this, you, you, know, you, you mentioned the ultimate truth is this emptiness. What does that mean for us? I mean, you say exploring it, but then what? I mean, is life an eternal search? Um, is life trying to attach ourselves to emptiness? Is life trying to empty ourselves of everything? What, what is it for so you? So emptiness is a very technical term. Right, go on. And it actually is the same meaning as interdependence. Go on. So emptiness is not empty of something. It is not an empty cup. We don't have to empty ourselves of something. We have to remove the obstructions to seeing the true nature of reality, which is called emptiness, which means, and there are like excruciating uh, details of, of what it means, but which means that things do not exist inherently. They all all phenomena uh. exist as interdependent arisings. They they originate through dependence on other phenomena. So even if it's the phenomena of being able to conceptualize them. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, this our world is now showing us this. Right. Right? right. We are incredibly interdependent now, and it is obvious. Mm. Coronavirus is hitting us over the head right, with it. Right. We are not independent, permanent entities. And actually what Buddhism, Buddhism takes that to the next extreme, nothing is. Nothing that's a product is permanent. So is it emptiness of self? Emptiness of, of um, ego? Is it, is it that? Yes. And um, so it's um, there are two levels of, of realizing emptiness. One is the realization of the self as empty, but there's also then the emptiness of phenomena. So that has two aspects. There's other phenomena besides the self, and then there's the, the phenomena that makes up the self. So there are different subtleties to understanding what emptiness means. I think my question regarding if everything is relative, if everything is interdependent, and it's lovely to be able to address literally one of the opening questions of the show, is truth relative or absolute? It sounds like everything is relative, everything is interdependent. What worries me, what challenges me, is um, that we hold on to a sense of the self in order to ground ourselves, in order for me to say, I am. And I, I appreciate that that is quite a modern Western perspective. But if I were truly, um, if, I would, if I were to spend all my life, if I were to explore the question of if I am interdependent, if I depend on everything and everyone else, then I would have to spend my entire life trying to work out who is everything and everyone else. And they're also dependent on everything and everyone else. I feel like I, I wouldn't know where to go with it because there's so much, isn't there? It's like if... If everything is so, if our entire being is so totally connected, don't I almost have a responsibility to learn about everything else? 
that's why what Buddhism, what Buddha is, is an enlightened being, which means they are omniscient. Any Buddha is omniscient. And so, are we so aiming to become that? In in Mahayana Buddhism, you are aiming for a Buddhahood. Yeah, you are developing your mind to the point where you have no obstructions to omniscience. So how does one become – because, I mean, it's one thing. I have two degrees from, from university, right? That, that's a step. But, but how, can, how can one become omniscient then? That's, that's an extraordinary thing because I, I don't think I've step ever had – Step by step. Right? I don't think, but I don't think I've ever had someone on the show talk about humans potentially becoming omniscient. Well, that's a huge Christianity, Judeo-Christian, that's, that's like a sacrilege. To, I mean, and you're also expressing some of what my mother was expressing, that, that, oh, my gosh, you can't not be connected to others. You can't not be attached to others is another aspect of I'm hearing behind your words a little bit. You know, like my family, how do you, how do you not be attached to your family? It's not about the karmic arisings right. and undoing love and attachment that's functioning. It's about becoming a, a, a higher and higher functioning human being. It's not about becoming more and more confused by the, the amount that you're having to understand. It's about being capable of that. So it's not that I'm there. Right, right, <laughs> I right. am not there, right. right? It is that there is never an end until you're there. And then you have endless service to all the suffering sentient beings that are, are still in that state. I'm so glad you mentioned suffering beings because the, I, I naturally project onto what you're saying that I would be really depressed to be omniscient. And that, that is totally a reflection of me, I appreciate, and maybe something to address in therapy. But, but, um, but there's that sense of, um, of coming to know so much pain, so much I mean, what you're talking about almost seems like attachment, the pain of attachment, the pain of um, I, I, I feel like when when you are holding as an ideal omniscience and you see everyone around who is not omniscient, is that depressing? I don't really know. But what I have what I've seen in terms of models of people who are further along than I am. You know, going to um, to sit in a small room, not much bigger than this one, with eight meditators that have been meditating for 30 years. Right? Their minds are completely different than yours and mine. Mm -hmm. The effect of sitting in a room with that many minds that are in that state of peace, contentment, happiness that doesn't seem to be wavering like ours, non-attachment to worldly things, but certain um, goodness. Like when we are ethical, when we behave ethically, our minds are clear of all the garbage that that unethical behavior brings with it that sits in our hearts, even if it's small, you know. And, and, and then interferes with – and that's how we get to omniscience is by ethical behavior. It's based on ethical behavior and then meditation, concentration, capacity of the mind to focus, and then also wisdom. And that's where 
when you and I think about what it might be to be omniscient, we haven't gotten even to a level of wisdom that is understanding the true nature of things. So that all that suffering that we feel Mm -hmm. is not felt the same way when someone understands the true nature of it. My difficulty with this, and this, again, may reveal much about me, as I know sometimes in these conversations it does. There's a a passage in, there's a story, a Jewish story of Rabbi Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who, long story short, um, hides in a cave for many years. When he comes out of the cave, he's so angry at seeing a farmer, the, the farmer burst into flames. And he, because he says, because you've, you've got rid of the world eternal and you're engaging in the world temporal, basically. And um, God says, get back in the cave. Um, it seems to me, and this is a, I, I don't mean it as a criticism, it seems to me easy to be able to detach from the world and say, it is good. Whereas in my tradition, there's that sense of it's only good in relationship, in that, in the difficulties in life, in the suffering and being there. That's how we get good. We don't search for omniscience. We search for just helping people as they are. So maybe with last couple of minutes, can you respond to that? Like, like how, how does one do this in your tradition? There are many yogis that sit for 12 years, go out, get angry, and have to go back. Okay. Um, same, same. It is, it is about developing good qualities. It is not about that judgment that this is good, this is bad. It is about service through and through. The only way, again, I have to say it depends on which tradition you're following and so sure. on, but the only way within Mahayana um, Buddhism, again, which is uh, where, where Tibetan Buddhism falls in, and that's where I'm focusing my energy mostly these days. To get there, you have to go through what's called bodhicitta. You have to develop the mind of enlightenment. You have to have that wish that is so thoroughly embedded into everything you're doing that nothing you are doing is for yourself. Mm -hmm. It is all Mm -hmm. for the service of others. And in this way, it is being a wise... um, it's making a wise, selfish selfish choice. Mm. I am developing myself to become a Buddha in order to be able to benefit everybody, including myself. Right. And so there is n- – there. And, and if I were to imagine becoming a Buddha and sitting in a cave alone, that would not really be the use of that omniscience that would right. be – that would be available to me at that point, right? And and so a Buddha only exists, these are all theories now that I'm giving you, I hardly have exposed myself at all, but the Buddha only exists in order to help others. You have opened a door this evening. Nice. I really hope that you are able to come back again and for us to start stepping through that door and start to explore more of this really deep, powerful philosophy, theology, religion, way of life. I I really thank you for for coming here this evening. Oh, you're very welcome, Rabbi Neil. So thank you to Rachel Raya, our middle school teacher, practicing Buddhist. Um, It really has been wonderful having you with us. I really genuinely hope you come back again. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching 
with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>